Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence by the Ohio Board of Regents in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, a brand-new facility completed in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in the new building. Read more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some are not, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. Today we're chatting with Dr. Amina Hassan, an independent historian and an award-winning public radio documentarian who has done work for National Public Radio, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. She's authored a new book, Lauren Miller, civil rights attorney and journalist, published by the University of Oklahoma Press. As both a journalist and a lawyer, Miller fought for the civil rights of African Americans, Japanese American citizens in World War II, black Muslims, and the Latino population in Southern California. Give us a snapshot of, of Lauren Miller. He, he's not as prominent in the popular press as Thurgood Marshall, perhaps, or Martin Luther King or others, but certainly a, a major force in the civil rights movement. He's very, he was very significant. Um, the reason why people can live where they want are, is because of people like Lauren Miller and Thurgood Marshall. He overturned racial restrictive housing covenants back in 1948. He went before the Supreme Court twice. He um, owned um, an African-American newspaper. He was in, He was from the Midwest. He was born in Nebraska and lived the rest of his life uh, or an early life in Kansas. And then he came out to California. He was, um, he graduated from Washburn College with a degree in law and then came out to California in 1929 and became quite involved in newspaper world as a reporter and um, and also involved at, with the NAACP as um, an attorney. So he went back and forth. He, he was a poor boy. He and, was had a fascinating uh, life, and, and I, I want you to tell the story. He, he came up from absolute poverty. Poverty is his. Uh, one of his parents, his father, I believe, was a, sl- a slave, uh, born in 1903, uh, early part. But but your family was involved with him uh, er- early on, correct? I knew Lauren Miller's name when I was a child in Los Angeles, but I didn't know much more than that. And only when I was writing the book, I asked my father. Um, how did he know Lauren Miller? And my father at the time was um, a postal carrier because he later became an engineer. And one day he and two other carriers uh, who were white went into a restaurant in Los Angeles and they refused to serve my father. And so um, they all three got up and left. And because my mother knew Lauren Miller's wife, who was a social worker, is how he came to know Lauren Miller, as well as his reputation in L.A. was quite 
people were aware who he sure, was. Sure. And so um, so he went to him, and I, the case never went to court, and they got the standard $100 each, all three of them, even the two white guys. And so that's why I sort of knew there. And um, But that was of late. But I didn't know his name. He was like, oh, this is an important guy. And... Um, and but that was when I was in the midst of uh, of the research of the book and have learned so much. He was so poor. Um, they were the family was sort of like itinerant squatters. They would go from house to house. And this it, was in Kansas, really. Uh, in Nebraska, Nebraska? yeah, because he went to Kansas when he was around eleven. Okay. Because his father had come from there. His uh, father was born into slavery, and he married um, a white woman, Midwesterner. Uh, in 1900, which was quite a deal at that time. So it was mixed race, which was a mixed w- race. It brought its own problems back in, in that time. Certainly some problems now, but even more back then. Oh, yes. But he grew up in, in this um, in Pender, Nebraska, which was near uh, an Indian reservation. And they were the only black family in town. And But he didn't really experienced anything racial at that time other than that they were very very poor his father worked at the courthouse as a janitor his family was literate his father could read and write his mother was um, a a school teacher had been a school teacher and left because of she had eye problems and there were seven children and they were struggling all the time but he was smart and he was recognized really early um, how how um, how intelligent he was, and he had a great deal of in, encouragement. And then he, the family moved to Kansas, which is where his father was from. And, um, and that's when he ran into some level of racism, um, not extensively, but there was some of that. And then he went off to college, but he had always been encouraged. He had a school teacher. Um, in fact, when he moved to Kansas, he didn't like his new school, and he wrote his former teacher in Nebraska to complain about it. And she said, um, work hard, Lauren, don't worry. Um, you'll become greater than the teacher who won't give you credit. And then she said something that was quite remarkable. She says, maybe one day, Lauren, you will be our president. And if not our president, you will be something really significant and do something very important. And this teacher was a white woman. And she's telling him in like 1914, that he could possibly be the president at a time when a a black boy would not even consider anything like that. But he knew he had this encouragement that he would do something very, very significant and important. And um, and, you know, and he did. But he had this encouragement. He he was uh, a bright young man. but really was uh, into writing, as I understand it. Uh, right, he th- was a real thought introvert. he was going to be a creative writer. Certainly wasn't uh, at that point the bombastic uh, image you have of a of a uh, litigator. Uh, uh, sort of a, a quiet and, and really liked the written word. He wanted to. He he had. Wanted to be an attorney at some point in his life. That's what his father wanted him to do. and uh, But as he got older, he became more enamored with writing. He wanted to write novels and poems, and he did, but they weren't necessarily published. And uh, he went off to the law school, and um, but it was always this back-and-forth kind of thing. And, and I think the compromise was journalism, that he could um, be active and also write in that kind of way. And um, and it brought notice to him being in the press, 
But, um, but yes, and he um, became really good friends with the prominent writer Langston Hughes. And um, I mean, Miller preferred political activism and writing to, to the law. And they went off uh, to the Soviet Union in 1932 to, wow. make, to make a movie about black life in America. And there were 20 other people who were on this trip. And um, the film was never finished. It was a big chaos. And he came back to the United States, and that's when he got, he got married. Um, his new wife encouraged him to go back into the law. And, um, and that's how he did at the height of the, of the Great Depression. So he went back. He, would, he was working as a journalist and a lawyer. The, the Great Depression, though, did have a, a major role, as I understand it, in him making that shift into the practice uh, of law. Uh, law was one of those things. He was uh, admitted to the bar, got his law, legal education, but it was in the background until the Great Depression and, as you say, until he got married. Right. And his wife was um, very supportive because when he was in the Soviet Union before they got married, she would send him money. She was always supportive of him. She was a social worker. She had graduated from the University of Southern California and had studied to be a social worker. And she always had that job, and she rose up in the system. And um, in 1935, he went uh, to New York. And he worked for uh, various publications, mainly the New Masses, which was a, public, a communist uh, a publication. And um, she supported him then. And as he got closer to um, 1936 or so, then he became, you know, more the attorney and, um, and balanced his life between, between uh, being a lawyer and being a journalist. And, um, but she was extremely important in his life and very, very supportive but, uh, but the Great Depression took a toll on people. He went back to California, and, and uh, his practice of law was uh, not entirely, but it certainly was cause-oriented. Wouldn't you agree with that? Right. He, um, he focused on education and housing issues. Um, it's said that he, he um, handled more racial housing covenant cases than anyone, perhaps like a, a hundred. Wow. He knew more about that area. And also Los Angeles residents, um, black people in Los Angeles were fed up with the housing restrictions and had more, um, had more lawsuits in, you know, in the system than in any place in the country. And um, so that kind of gave him, you know, the wherewithal to, to eventually get to the Supreme Court. He had this extensive experience. And he actually won one of the first cases, or this, it's purported that he won the first case on constitutional grounds for restrictive covenants. Um, he had represented um, uh, Hattie McDaniel, who was the first black woman to receive an Academy Award. Oh, that's uh, right. Had gotten an Oscar for Gone with the with Wind. wind. And she moved into an area in Los Angeles, an exclusive area in Los Angeles called Sugar Hill. And when they, she thought that she wouldn't have any trouble, she did. And uh, there were lawsuits, and there were 50 other people who were uh, co-defendants. And uh, he eventually won. He won that case, and that was like the, maybe the first on constitutional grounds. It was not part of the one that went to the Supreme Court, but uh, it was still significant experience for him to to go to the Supreme Court on that. He uh, always took on causes, is, is evident, but, but 
his civil rights causes weren't just concentrated in the African-American community, right? Didn't he work with the internment of Japanese citizens during World War II? Yes, he did. He um, he worked with the, um, the American Civil Liberties Union in Southern California because the National um, ACLU did not take a position on the internment of West Coast Japanese. Yeah, they backed off on that. Yeah, they backed they? off nationally. But in the Southern California branch, um, they they took cases. They, they challenged the curfew. The curfew came first, and then they challenged the internment in court. And um, naturally, they lost. And um, But he was in the forefront of that. Um, he wasn't always about black people. It was always about the disenfranchised. And um, he later... Uh, when his he lived in an area in in uh, Los Angeles that he had Japanese neighbors, and he held their deeds when they went off to the camps and returned them to um, return them when they returned after the war and rented their houses out for them and accumulated that money and gave it to them. And I've actually found out met people now. This is after the book who actually lived in those houses. Um, he also was quite involved in the Mexican American community. He was part of. Um, uh, of a class action. Uh, there were four school districts in California that uh, wouldn't allow Mexican-American children to be in the public schools, and that case um, made it to the state Supreme Court and um, and was overturned, and that was called um, Mendez versus uh, Westminster. And so he was involved. He didn't write it. He, he did a friend of the court brief, but he also argued it in court and that became a very important case because they used sociological and psychological evidence to show how uh, discrimination damages children. That and, was revolutionary. And that was very revolutionary. And that was became the sociological and psychological evidence became part of the Brown v. Board of Education that was overturned um, discrimination in public uh, schools in America. And so it was sort of the the stepping stone into the forefront that led into Brown v. Board of Education to take that. He didn't argue Brown before the Supreme Court, but he did write the majority of the legal briefs in Brown. I, I noted that he uh, had a, a major role in several cases, but they were uh, uh, on the writing side. He, he was not the, uh, the in-court mouthpiece, but, but certainly a mouthpiece nonetheless. Right, right. We're talking to Dr. Amina Hassan. She is an independent historian, an award-winning public radio documentarian. She's back on campus talking about her book, Lauren Miller's Civil Rights Attorney and Journalist, published by the Oklahoma University of Oklahoma Press. Move forward a little bit, if you would. He was involved in the case of Shelley versus Kramer and that that decision came out in 1948. Correct. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that and what the case was about and and how he got involved. Well, because he was well known for having done uh, restrictive covenant cases and by this point he's he's part of the NAACP legal defense team and um, and there were historically three very important uh, meetings that they had in terms of strategy and eventually they petitioned the Supreme Court and I believe it was three or four cases that became part of the Shelley 
the Kramer case. Uh, they combined them. They combined them, yes. And he represented the uh, one of the other ones, I think it was called Sipes versus McGee. And, but he and Thurgood Marshall are the ones who argued before the Supreme Court on that. One of the cases, they were Missouri, is it, is it Michigan, and Washington, D.C., if I, if I remember correctly. And, um, and they won. They said it, it was based on the 14th Amendment. It was a violation to deny the, the people the access to, to purchase property and to live. And then it came back in 1953 in another case, I think it was Barrows v. Jackson, and that was um, uh, one of the people who had a covenant, and um, they, they were suing uh, another white family that had sold their property to a black person, and and that caught, that case got lost too. I mean, they they got knocked down by the Supreme Court um, because they were just trying to get around suing people. How did he get along with Thurgood Marshall, who ended up being, a, for people who may not know, a, a Supreme Court justice? Uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall, when he was younger, sort of had a personality bigger than life. Uh, later in his later years in the court where I got, got a chance to, to witness him, he was a little more reclusive and, and uh, introspective. But in his younger days, it seems like these two men had contrasting personalities. Well, they got sense. along pretty well. There's some really great letters between them. Um, he stood up for, for Lauren when... Um, other attorneys were, were vying to be part of the Shelley, um, the Shelley v. Kramer case, and, and, and Marshall said, no, you're the guy. You know more about this than anyone. I'm not going to let any of these people boss me around. You're going to be it. And because um, he says no fast foot work, you know, is going to get you because <laughs> you know the most, and we need to have people who know the issue. And um, he would— um, he was always very respectful, Miller, of uh, Thurgood. He was—his letters are very— not um, challenging in that kind of way. So he had a great deal of support from Thurgood Marshall. Um, they were similar in some ways. You know, they could play cards and smoke and, and do that kind of stuff. And and, and he was—Miller um, wasn't a stiff person, just like Thurgood Marshall wasn't no. a stiff. And they were kind of—Marshall uh, came from a working-class family, and so they had, um, you know, more camaraderie and that— uh, the only thing is, is that Miller was in California and Thurgood was at the time in New York. And so um, they would meet that way. And the people always referred to Lauren Miller as cuz. Um, so there was always this, you know, he was this cousin. And um, that was how uh, people talked to Miller all the time. And so did Thurgood Marshall. So they got along, I think, pretty well. But, yeah, Thurgood Marshall was a, was a big guy, you know, in many Physically many as well yes, right. as, as in right. personality. But uh, Miller was able to pers- – um, when they were trying to figure out the strategy, the best strategy in the Shelley case, they um, – Miller uh, – I mean, Thurgood Marshall wasn't convinced that they should use uh, – um, part of the one of the clauses in the 14th Amendment. And, and Miller convinced him that they needed to deal with, uh, the, you know, the, in, the, the two clauses within the 14th Amendment and um, uh, that they were intertwined. And he convinced him because before he wasn't. So he had some leverage into, to, um, you know, to making those kinds of decisions because it was always a very collegial kind of thing. Fash- but, but, fashioning but, the arguments. Yes, and, right, right. And, and pinpointing Yeah, they did the have arguments. the due process and equal protection. He wasn't so strong. Uh, Thurgood Marshall wasn't so strong on the, um, 
uh, I believe it was the equal protection part of it, right. and and Miller convinced him that this is the way to go. That uh, that was all going on in the, the late forties, early fifties, and and but in nineteen fifty one, Lauren Miller bought a newspaper, right. uh, the the Los An- or excuse me, the California Eagle. Uh, talk about that. I mean, it, he, it seemed like he had to uh, nurture both sides of his professional personality almost simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, he had actually, when he came to California, he first worked for the California Eagle. At the time, it was the longest-running black newspaper in the West. And um, so he worked there for a few years. And then he and his cousin um, started uh, the— founded the Los Angeles Sentinel, which still is um, a newspaper in Los Angeles to this day. And um, and Miller doesn't really get much credit for being a co-founder. And then in 1951, he did buy the California Eagle. And um, he, because um, through the years, he had been working more with the, the Los Angeles Sentinel. And so um, he sold it in 64 when he became a judge. So, um, and he changed it a little bit. He had been um, extremely to the left and had been charged sometimes of being a communist, which he always denied, but because he had worked for communist publications over the years in the 30s, <laughs> that um, uh, he took sort of an anti-communist stand in the, in the, when he bought the California Eagle, but he always was working for um, the cause of the disenfranchised no matter what, and I think it was because of the Red Scare. He sort of took a, a public... Um, state, you know, position uh, because of what was going on. Um, and so, um, to, uh, I guess, appease people. And uh, there was an outcry in the very conservative community against him having um, the newspaper as well as when he became a judge in 1964. We'll be back after this message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. The Scripps faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing media environment. The Scripps College of Communication is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence in Ohio in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, the brand new facility that opened in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in this new building. Learn more about the Scripps College of Communication at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. How did he survive the McCarthy era? Because he, he became this newspaper owner and, and he had had this – whenever you represented the downtrodden back then, you were sort of targeted. <laughs> Whether, yeah, right. <laughs> how did he survive that era? Um, I'm, well, I'm not absolutely sure, but the, 
The uh, FBI began tracking him in around 1942. Okay. I think it's because of his position on the internment of the Japanese is when uh, right. that sort of— But in his FBI file, you see they are um, following him at certain meetings. If his name comes up in some of the communist meetings, and there, there's a sort of go back and forth— uh, one informant will say he's a communist and someone else will say, no, he's not. And um, so he had that to contend with. Um, and the FBI, I think, in the 50s did come in and talk to him once in his office. Uh, there was a big black communist who came to California. And I, when, they, when the FBI came to talk to Miller, I can't remember if it was either before or after that time. And um, But... Um, I think maybe because of his um, his legal work that he wasn't attacked or or suffered as other people or imprisoned because of the during the Red Scare. They didn't want to take him on. <laughs> right, right. I mean, he, he was a lawyer, and so he was doing legal things, and I think that might have protected him some kind of way. Now, in 1964, Gov- Governor Edmund Brown, uh, the father of the current governor, Jerry Brown, uh, in California, a, a white man appointed him as a municipal court judge in uh, Los Angeles County, Los Angeles Mis- County Municipal Court Judge. Uh, that had to be sort of a daring move on Edmund Brown's part, in part because of his uh, reputation. Uh, uh, how did that work out? How did Well, Miller knew Brown. He had been a strong Democrat and supported him early on. And they had a um, they had a relationship. He, they knew each other. Um, he knew what Miller's work was about, and um, and he was in, and uh, Pat Brown was uh, nominating uh, various African Americans to the court at that time. And uh, Miller, in many ways, was a was much later when uh, that happened. He had the experience, but um, he yeah he would have been about sixty one yeah, years old yeah and time. and it would have been a, a flag um, uh, because of his uh, his relationship with the communists and and all of that. So it took a while for 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 Pat Brown to to appoint him. And then later, um, Jerry Brown, uh, Edmund Brown's son, the current governor governor um, in California, um, you know, appointed um, other. African Americans to higher courts after that, so there was sort of a continuation within the family uh, of the Browns to, um, and some commitment to people who are strong Democrats, and um, you know the appointments came. Did Lauren Miller like being a judge because it's a whole lot different being a judge than being an advocate? It was kind of a lowly position. He was sort of like a traffic judge, and that was people. Other people kind of complained about that. But I, I in the book, I, I mentioned. Uh, some of the cases, and he was um, pretty well respected. He didn't just let people off easily. There's one case where one guy, one family man, had been arrested at least a dozen times for drunk driving. And his wife and all of his kids, I think the guy had about seven or eight kids, and they all came down, and they're sort of like trying to, to get the sympathy of Miller. And no, he sent the guy to jail because, you know, the wife was saying, well, he can't go to jail for— 30 days or whatever it was, and um, and he said, no, you know, he's a danger on the road. And other people, he would take, but then he was very sympathetic with, in other cases. So he was, he was, and there were um, 
people writing letters to the editor in the Los Angeles Times, you know, saying how surprised they were. He was such a fair judge. And, and I think he was. I know in his own life with his children, he was very supportive and very in their lives and very um, balanced, you know, as a parent. Today, we've been talking to Dr. Amina Hassan, a historian and radio documentarian, about her new book, Lauren Miller, Civil Rights Attorney and Journalist, published by the University of Oklahoma Press. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcast, you can direct them to me via email at hudson at ohio.edu. That's H-O-D-S-O-N at ohio.edu.